So uh, this morning, this is our very last message in Ecclesiastes. Very last one. It's come to this. Hey? It's been a journey of I don't know how many months, and we've traveled a long way through 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. I thought actually this morning a good way to start might be with a little pop quiz. What do you think? Hey, just, which could be a, a disappointment to me depending on what happens, but uh, just to see if you've actually learned anything, and just to sweeten the deal, I do have some chocolate here that I thought I could uh, distribute. I don't know whether you're allowed to do this in church or not, but when you're the guy with the microphone on, you can. Uh, so, a couple of questions here, and I'll just look for a show of hands. I'll see if I can spot the first hand up. Uh, first question. The author of Ecclesiastes is usually translated as the teacher. In this series, we have been calling him what? Oh, that was Phil Carr right here. The Quester. The Quester. Nice. Uh, I won't let you choose. There you go tomorrow. Okay, okay. Um, what is the quester's favorite word? That was down the back somewhere. That might have been you, Patty. Meaningless. Great stuff. Here it comes. Watch out. Whoa, that was a bit low flying. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, okay. Now, this is, a, this is a bit trickier for a picnic or a crunchy. Uh, a three-parter, okay? Name three things the quester describes as meaningless. Uh-huh. All right, I'll take two. <laughs> One, anybody? Yeah, James. Life, yes, well, yeah, everything. Yeah, okay, that's a little bit. Of, can you be any more specific than that? Wealth, that'll do, that'll do. Good on you. Picnic or crunchy? Good man. There you go. A bit more of a lob. Sorry, sorry, sorry if you're a visitor. Sorry. <laughs> Gosh. Okay, last one, last one, a bit more hopeful. Uh, name just one thing that the quester says is good. Lots of stuff are meaningless. What's good? Yeah, that was over here. That was you, Kara. Sorry? Does he? <laughs> Sorry. I don't know whether he actually says music, does he? Go on. Yeah, he, yeah, it was too. Food. <laughs> Chairman of the elders right there. All right. I don't know that you were first, but you got it anyway. Okay. Good stuff. Well, you've learned something. I hope. I hope. Okay. So this morning, very last passage in Ecclesiastes. In chapter 12, right at the end. And what's important here, what's important to realize in this passage is it's not the quest of speaking. Uh, right at the end of the book actually at the beginning and then the end, uh, this other voice chimes in, and it's the voice of a narrator. We don't know who he is, but this narrator pops up at the beginning and introduces the book for the first 11 verses, and then he resurfaces at the end in uh, chapter 12, verse 9, and he draws it to a conclusion. So you notice the voice shifting. So this guy is now talking about the quester in the third person. That's what's going on here. And he's drawing it all to a conclusion and giving his own evaluation of the quester's teaching. So he's basically giving himself the last word, which is always nice. So verse 9 of chapter 12. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. And so the narrator is saying the quest is not a bad guy. You can kind of get this impression that he's just depressive, he's always so negative, he's such a melancholic, but the uh, narrator is saying, don't be too hard on him. 
He's not trying to be malicious. He's not trying just to depress us. He's a genuine shepherd. He's a genuine wisdom teacher. He's he's been on a genuine and sincere journey for meaning. And even though he's often concluded that life is meaningless and things within life are meaningless, he's, he's wrestled honestly with the issues. He's looked at the brutality of life. He's confronted the stuff that's not right. And he's genuinely tried to find some answers in it. So we can't be too harsh on him. He is a good shepherd. He is a wise teacher. What he wrote uh, were upright and true. He's a voice worth listening to, is what the narrator is telling us. Then in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. To which all of you students that have just finished uni exams and school exams can say, Amen, all right? Much study wearies the body. It's interesting, this little image of the, of the goads and the nails. This was, this was a, an instrument that farmers and shepherds used to keep animals going. These big planks of wood uh, that went, went crossways and then into the animals with nails at the end. And they'd push them along. These nails would prod the oxen, the animals, when they would go too far to the, the right, too far to the left, or if they just weren't moving fast enough. It was a pretty uncomfortable way of keeping these animals on track and keeping them moving. And it's not a bad image of what Ecclesiastes is like and what Ecclesiastes has been. It's not particularly comfortable, is it, as a book? It feels a bit like the goads and the nails. You could maybe think of Proverbs as being a gentle kind of book. You know, a gentle shepherd using the rod and the staff to comfort. But in Ecclesiastes, the shepherd pulls out the goads and the nails. And there's a place for both, isn't there? Within our Christian lives, there's a place to be disturbed. That's part of what we've been trying to do in this series. It has been provocative. It's at times been uncomfortable. It's knocked us off balance a bit. It's challenged some entrenched convictions. It's challenged some conventional wisdom, maybe. But it's been real. And it's a voice that we need to listen to because sometimes we need the gentle word and then sometimes we need the harsh word. We do need the, the, the nails sometimes, don't we? We do need the goads to keep us going, to keep us going along the straight path. And that's what Ecclesiastes is. That's what it's been. That's how the narrator sees it. And then here's the passage I really want to focus most of my time on this morning in verse 13 and 14. And this is the narrator's conclusion. So he's basically saying, here's what I think is meaningful in life. This is where I think meaning can be found. We've heard what the quest has said, but here's my final conclusion. Verse 13, now all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of every human being. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This phrase revolves around a phrase at the end of verse 13, uh, where he writes, for this is the duty of every human being. It's not a great translation of that phrase, for this is the duty of every human being. The word duty is not actually in there. The phrase literally reads, this is every person, or this is all of humanity, or this is the whole of humanity. That's how the Hebrew reads. And I don't think this is really a statement about duty at all. I think it's a statement about humanity. I think the narrator is telling us something about what it means to be human. He's saying this is the essence of humanity. This is what it truly means to be human. It's another way of framing the same question that the quest has been wrestling with, of where is meaning in life. The narrator is saying 
Well, I'm not going to talk about it that way. I want to ask, what does it mean to be human? What is the essence and the core and the heart of our humanity? What is true humanness? And for him, it comes down to three things. First of all, fear God. Now think about this. Which part of the Old Testament do you most associate with fearing God, the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the wisdom books. This is a common refrain, especially in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord. This is the classic statement of wisdom. And by using that phrase, the narrator is, is, is telling us, don't just listen to the voice of the quester, but anchor yourself in all of the wisdom books. Fear God. Perhaps he feels the quest has been a bit light on fearing God, and he wants to draw us back to fear God. That's the beginning of wisdom. That's the beginning of real wisdom. You've got to listen to the whole teaching of the wisdom books and the fear of the Lord. He's trying to bring us back onto this solid ground. So fear God, and then number two, keep his commandments. Now, what part of the Old Testament do you most associate with keeping God's commands? First few books? Yeah, particularly perhaps Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the law, isn't it? It's the Torah. We call the first five books the Pentateuch. That's the heart of the Old Testament law. And again, maybe the narrator feels that the quest has been a bit light on the keeping commandments bit. So he's pulling us back to the law. He's saying, get back to keeping the commandments. Get back to the solid ground of the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. Are you starting to see what he's doing? And then he's got this phrase, number three, fear God, keep his commandments, and then number three, for God will bring every deed into judgment. Now, what part of the Old Testament do you most associate with the judgment of God? Who talks about judgment that's coming more than anybody else? It tends to be the prophets. They're pretty big on judgment. The judgment that's coming to Israel, the judgment that's coming to the nations, the final judgment uh, where God will, will judge all things. And again, the narrator's saying, don't just listen to this one voice of the questers. There's wisdom there, but remember the prophets. Remember what those guys have got to say about judgment. Maybe he feels the quest has been a bit light on judgment, and now he wants to remind us there's more to it. He's pulling us up into the big story. He's pulling us up into the fullness of what was for him the whole scripture, the Old Testament. It was commonly believed the Old Testament was made up of three pillars, the law, the prophets, and the writings, which was a culmination of the wisdom books and the poetry books. And here, with one clean sweep, the narrator is pulling all of that together, and he's summarizing it. In fact, you probably couldn't find a better summary of the Old Testament than verse 13 and 14. Fear God, keep His commandments, because God's going to bring every deed into judgment. With, with that statement, He has wrapped up and summed up the fullness of the Old Testament teaching. And he's saying to us, yes, the quester has some wisdom. Yes, he's got something to contribute. But let's look at the whole Old Testament picture, the fear of the Lord and the wisdom books, the keeping of the commandments and the voices of the prophet. It's the whole thing we need and not just one bit. So he's pulling us back to this bigger story. And we could leave it there. And we could say, well, that's a nice... That's a nice, tidy three-point sermon, isn't it? That's what every preacher dreams of, you know? Landing the three-pointer. That's the dream, you know? Fear God, keep His commandments. God will bring everything into judgment. That's what it means to be human, according to the narrator. And that's true, but it's not true enough. That's right, but it's not right enough. 
And consistently through this series, what we've tried to do is ask the question, what does this mean in view of Jesus? What does this look like in view of the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus? And how does that recolor the picture we're getting? That's what we should do every time we open the Old Testament. Because that's what a Christian reading of Scripture looks like. That we're reading this through the lens of the crucified and risen Messiah. And so let's ask that question. What does this look like in view of Jesus? What does the narrator's comments about what it means to be truly human look like in view of Jesus? Turn over for a second to Luke 24. There's one little statement here that Jesus himself makes. After he's been resurrected, just before he ascends back to heaven. Luke 24, verse 44. Jesus says, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. It's interesting that he chooses the Psalms there, isn't it? That's representative of that that body of writings called the writings, the wisdom literature and the poetry books. And Jesus is saying here, I've fulfilled all three. They've all found their fulfillment in me. I, I don't think he means... There's a couple of isolated verses here that talk about me and there's a verse in Isaiah that talks about me here and here's a prophecy about me here and that little verse over there, that's pointing to me as well. I don't think it's these disconnected texts that point to Jesus. I think he's saying, I've fulfilled the whole lot. All of it. Even the bits that weren't directly talking about me, I've fulfilled because the whole of the Old Testament is one massive signpost pointing us to Jesus. It's one huge signpost saying, The the, the Messiah is coming. Jesus is true wisdom. He's what the wisdom writers always looked for without even realizing they were looking for it. He's the embodiment of wisdom, personification of wisdom. Jesus is the law. He's the true law. He is Torah. Not just in the sense that he kept it perfectly, because he didn't, but in the sense that he embodied it. He was law. It was fulfilled. It It culminated in him. The law always pointed to Jesus, every part of it. And he is the center and the climax of biblical prophecy, the one around whom all the prophets revolve, the one they longed to know about, as Peter told us, as they searched to gain understanding of these things. Jesus is the great word spoken by God, the great prophetic word, the center of all prophecy. And so the wisdom books and the writings, and the prophets, they all just come together and coalesce around the person of Jesus. Now, if you return to that central question that the narrator's working with here, what does it mean to be human? You've got to keep that in mind as you work your way through this. What does it mean to be human? Well, for him, what it means to be human is to obey the law, the prophets, and the writings. But what does it mean then that Jesus has come and fulfilled all of that? What does that say about who Jesus is? Doesn't it mean that he is the truly human one? If to be human is to fulfill the Old Testament and conform to the entirety of it, what Jesus has done is just that. Therefore, he is the truly human being. He's the essence of of humanity. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to see the heart of humanity, look at Jesus. If you want to see what humanity was created to be, God's created intent for our humanness, look at Jesus. Look at that man walking along those dusty roads of Palestine. He's the true human being. 
a truly human one. So you come full circle then to the central question. What does it mean for us to be truly human? That's the question the narrator's posing. What does it mean for us to be truly human? The answer the narrator would have given to that question is conform to the law and the prophets and the writings. But for us now, with the full witness of the scriptures, we have to say, to be truly human is to be like Jesus because he is the truly human one. To be truly human is to know Jesus and to be increasingly conformed to his image in our lives. I don't know if you've ever had the thrill of leading someone to Jesus and, and being there, you know, being there right at that moment when they make that commitment, or maybe over the time period when they make a commitment to Jesus, they decide to give their lives over to him and begin to follow him. It's just nothing more thrilling, hey, those of you that have been there. Just no, nothing that makes you feel more alive, I think, than being with someone in that moment. Because when somebody does that, and when, when those of us that have stepped into that relationship, when we made that choice, you're not just becoming a Christian. You are becoming human in a very real sense in the fullest and truest sense of that word you are becoming human that's why jesus talked about it to nicodemus as being born again it's the sense of rebirth you know and that, and that, that term born it's become such a cliche isn't it you know you're born again you're born again i've been born again you know <laughs> i don't know why i used an american accent with that but anyway. <laughs> you know the born again thing it's kind of like this classic evangelical label and I cringe when I hear it but at the the heart of it man there's something so rich there because that's exactly what a relationship with Jesus is it is a rebirth but it's rebirth into true humanity not into something other than humanness we kind of get embarrassed by our humanity but Jesus is, is is inviting us to be born again into our humanity being reawakened that's what happens when someone comes to know Jesus their humanity is reawakened And the image of God that was so marred and tainted and corrupted by sin begins to be healed, begins to be restored, begins to be renewed. And that's just the beginning, isn't it? Starting out that relationship. It's just the beginning of what should be a lifelong process of becoming more and more human as we become more and more like Jesus. Those two things go together. Becoming like Jesus, becoming you remember a couple of months ago we had that a couple of messages on forgiveness and we did that thing where where some people came up took a rock that represented the life of someone that had hurt you wounded you in some way and you placed it down at the foot of the cross as a symbolic act of saying that you are seeking to forgive that person and follow the way of jesus in forgiving them it was an amazing sight you know those who were up here or, or who saw it and got close to it, it, it was really moving. Just seeing a group of people here who are t- taking that tough road of saying, I want to walk in the way of Jesus and I want to forgive whether or not they deserve it, whether or not they've apologized. I want to forgive because that's what it means to become like Jesus. And it's, it was sobering for me to think, you know, as, as I lay a rock down there for people that I need to forgive, for some people, I'm that rock. You know, I'm the one they need to forgive. 
That's hard, isn't it? That's hard to hear. That's the truth. For the times that I've messed up, hurt them, wounded them. But when you do that, when you take a rock and lay it down like that, when you go through this process of forgiveness, you're not just being a better Christian. You are becoming more human. And a little piece of your humanity is being restored. I think the reason maybe this jars a bit with us is because we're so used to thinking of our humanity in a negative way. You think about how we talk about our humanity, we say, oh, well, I'm only human. You know, and, and we associate that with making mistakes, don't we? Oh, well, they're only human. It's associated with the negative stuff. Or that old saying, to err is human, to forgive is divine. What are we saying there? That our humanity is always on the negative side of the equation, right? And to forgive, well, that's not human at all. This is divine, you know? We are playing down. Now, of course, our humanity, we are broken people, yes. We are stained by sin. And we're in desperate need of redemption. But we've got to remember, friends, our humanity is not just full of brokenness. It's full of glory. It's full of glory. Listen to the words. You don't need to turn here, but just listen to the words for a minute of Psalm 8. Beautiful statement of what humanity is all about. Psalm 8, verse 4. What are mere mortals or human beings that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the heavenly beings. And crown them with glory and honor. You've made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. That's what humanity is. That's God's created intent for you. That's what God intended humanity to be in the beginning. And yes, that has been lost through sin, but that's exactly what Jesus came to restore. That's exactly what he's healing within us. This is the created intent that he's leading us back towards. And when we become a little more like Jesus, when we become a little more human, we're reclaiming some of that glory. We're reclaiming some of that honor. We're reclaiming some of that stewardship that we were intended to have over the good world that God created. We're becoming a bit more human and a bit more like this Psalm 8 description. So maybe we need to think about the language we use around our humanity Maybe we need to say, to err is human, to forgive is more human still. How about that? How does that sit with you? It's different, isn't it? But I would argue that when you forgive a person, it's one example, but when you forgive a person, that's a deeply human act. represents the highest and best of what our humanity was created to be because it's Christ-like. You are bearing well the image of Jesus in those moments. And one day, friends, Jesus is going to restore our humanity completely. One day, Psalm 8 will be a reality. See, we tend to think our our humanity is a bit of an embarrassment, that one day we're going to kind of shed our humanity and we're going to become something else, something other than. You think about the words that are used at funerals to describe the people that have passed away. What sort of words, what sort of language do we use? They're looking down on us. They're watching over us. What do we basically think they've become? Angels. I would say, most of the time, we talk about them like they're angels. We've got to get back to this biblical vision that God's goal for us is not to make us something other than human, but to make us fully human. Fully human. Just as Jesus is the fully human one and will be the fully human one, even in the new creation, so God's created intent for us is to redeem and restore and resurrect 
our humanity for those of us that follow Jesus, that our relationship with God and with self and with others and with the world is all renewed and perfected in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the goal. Human at last. And we're on the journey now. Every day, becoming a little more human or a little less human. A couple of months ago, I bought a line trimmer. You know those things you use to go around the edges of your lawn? And I'm embarrassed to say it took me a long time to figure out how to use this thing and get a straight line. You know, that's the difficulty, isn't it? You know, it's getting the straight line along the edges. And I found as soon as I was up against brick or, uh, or wooden fence, I was just shredding the nylon. It was going around my lawn trim. I was going through it at such a rapid rate. And I was getting frustrated. I'm getting more and more grumpy with this thing because it's not working the way. And I can't seem to get more nylon coming out of the machine as fast as I want to. So I'm just getting so frustrated with this, with this piece of equipment. And then in the end, I had because I lost some of the nylon through the hole, and I had to do what no guy ever wants to do. I had to ask my wife for help. <laughs> it was a depressing moment. Because she'd done this earlier on. She'd re-threaded the nylon from scratch, and I just had not learned that skill. So I, I, I had to ask for help. But of course, I, you know, I, I demanded that she came now and gave me her full attention and sorted this problem out. And believe it or not, she actually couldn't drop everything she was doing and meet my needs right then in that instant. She was looking after Joshua. So I got grumpy again. I snapped at her, went off on a huff. I'm ashamed. I, you know, I, I wish you had a better pastor, but this is, you know... <laughs> This, this was where I was at, and uh, it was just a bad episode, you know. And, and, and as I got back into the swing of things, she eventually did come out and help, got it sorted in about two seconds, and then I was away again. But I looked back on that, and I thought, that was just poor, you know. And, 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 and it's not good enough, is it, for me to say, well, I'm only human. Because I would say, as I look at that incident, I'd say, I was a bit less than human. You know what I mean? I, I lost a bit of my humanity there. That wasn't a human way of responding. That was subhuman. So let's not hide behind this excuse, me included, of, well, I'm only human. And I know God is full of grace. Of course he is. This is not a guilt trip. He's full of grace. I know because I need it every day. And his mercies are new for me every morning, just like they're new for you every morning. But Jesus calls us and invites us into a life where we are gradually, even though it might be three steps forward and two backwards, we are gradually becoming a little more human every day. A little more like Jesus every day. You think about it for your own life. You make the connections and the way you spend your time, the things that you give your energy to, and your reactions and overreactions to situations. You're becoming more human or less human? More like Jesus? or less like Jesus. You keep your eye on that goal of when you're going to be human at last. You're becoming more like that person, or less. It was the church father Irenaeus who said, the glory of God is the human being fully alive. And what does it mean to be fully alive? It means to be like Jesus, to know him deeply, and to be conformed to his image, to his humanity with an ever-increasing likeness day by day, month by month, year by year. So I'd have to agree with the narrator that the quester is a pretty good guide. I think he's been a reliable guide for us, don't you? He's been worth listening to. 
But I feel like the quester has sort of led us down a path and then he's got to a certain point with us and he said, this is as far as I can go. Because that's where he was in the story. That's where he stood in the biblical scheme of things. And he said, this is as far as I can take you. And so we've crossed some terrain by ourselves. And we've gone on a bit of a journey. But we have found that just over the horizon from where the quester left us, we've run into the arms of the man with the nail-pierced hands. The one in whom true meaning is found. Who transforms life from meaninglessness to meaningfulness. The one in whom true wisdom is found. And the one in whom true humanity is found. Who invites us to become a little more human every day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book and for this journey that we've been on. We thank you for its wisdom and for its power. And we thank you for leading us from the quester to Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that in you, in your life, we see true meaning and we see true humanness. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would conform us to your humanity. Help us to become more human and not less, more like you and not less like you, more like who you'll one day make us to be. And I thank you that along that journey, there's just endless grace for the times that we fail. You always just pick us up and set us back on track. And I pray for those this morning that need that, just that comfort and encouragement of knowing that you set us back on our feet, forgive us fully and completely, and just call us to take another step and another step and another step. Make us human, we pray. In Jesus' name. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz. Thank you.